Welcome everyone to another episode of Who Do You Deserve To Be? Um, it's been a while, um, but we have a great episode in line. Um, have an amazing guest on today, very inspirational guest. Um, I'm not going to take too much away from his limelight. I'm going to let him get into his, his story. It's incredible, um, very motivational. So please welcome Chris Skelly. Hi, Darren. Thank you for having me on the, your podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, yeah, just want to let everyone know who Chris Skelly is and your, your story, basically. Oh, uh, well, uh, hi, my name is uh, Chris Skelly. I'm uh, originally from Hull in Yorkshire, uh, currently living in Swindon with my wife. Um, yeah, I, I've been... I've started judo well, when I was five years old. Um, had kind of a... a a lovely childhood, um, but I was, you know, quite a slow, slow learner. Um, if that makes sense, I wasn't kind of a. I didn't speak till I was five. Um, I was very kind of uh, slow to pick up stuff because of my hearing. Because I was undiagnosed with my hearing, and I didn't get my first hearing aid till I was thirteen. So they think uh, my slowness in talking was due to me not being able to hear properly. Um, so my mum and dad got me into judo and rugby to quite physical sports, two sports which you get quite in intimate with people. So take me out of my comfort zone. Um, and yeah, just kind of carried on uh, doing judo and rugby through my school years. Um, every evening when my mates were playing out, I was on a rugby pitch or a judo mat uh, doing judo rugby, which, which was absolutely fantastic because I made so many amazing friends and still in touch with them now. Um, and yeah, just kind of carried on right through school, kind of kept me off the streets being naughty because I was a little, bit little bit mischievous when I was younger, but not too much. Um, I had a very strict mother. And um, yeah, carried right on the way through. Um, got really good uh, grades um, through school, even though I was, you know, very obviously struggling with my hearing and very badly dyslexic. And also, um, you know, at the time was was struggling with my sight, but not really kind of knowing what it was, just thought I needed glasses. Uh, went to college, wanted to be a mechanic, um, worked at a garage um, for free for about a year, trying to get experience, because obviously I wasn't experienced in, in, in being a mechanic, and I, I love working on cars, I love the smell of a car, um, when it's like you're doing like a petrol filter, an oil filter, and they get all sort of greasy. It's really weird sort of thing. I love doing that sort of hard graft work. Um, and then towards about 17, 18, started to have a few issues more with my eyesight, but kind of just trying to put on a back burner, uh, trying to kind of carry on with my life, you know, not just, you know, take notice of it. And then it started to gradually get worse and worse. And then about uh, 18, 19, I kind of had really bad luck with, eye, with my eyesight, where I had to start wearing sunglasses full time, uh, my eyes couldn't cope with the light. Um, I really struggled with the kind of uh, the the eyes kind of um, feeling quite tired a lot of the time. And then um, I finally managed to get an apprenticeship at a garage. However, I had to give it up quite soon because uh, I wasn't allowed to work anymore in garages because it was too dangerous. I was using magnifying glasses to uh, look at people's cars and everything like that and I think at one stage a customer said is he safe to work on a car <laughs> and then 
I think my boss was trying to keep me there because, you know, I was a hard worker. I was the first one in, last one out. I loved working hard. Um, but sadly, uh, one of the college tutors came in and spoke to me and said, I just don't think this is safe for you anymore, um, which was really difficult to hear. Um, and it was just getting worse and worse. And I was really struggling. I was getting really tired. I was sleeping lots because my eyes were just getting really fatigued. Um, and yeah, just kind of not knowing what was happening was quite scary. Uh, I was seeing doctors, but doctors weren't really understanding what was wrong with me. Um, a little bit of kind of disbelief, like um, what I had. A uh, little, pe- little kind of questioning if I was psychotic. So I was put into a, uh, I had to go and see a psycho, was it psychiatric nurse um, to kind of have a conversation with them and to see if I was making it up and if I was just trying to get attention, um, as one of the doctors said to me. Um, but they signed me off, said, no, absolutely fine. This guy is actually generally having a problem. Um, but no doctors would help me. So I was a bit kind of wow. a, kind of a, a loose end, if that makes sense. And just a little bit kind of upset and kind of really, really dark period of my life. I always talk to people about this. Like, this is one of the toughest times in your life. You've got all these people kind of, you know, questioning and, and making you feel so small and kind of, you know, you, you, you're questioning yourself and what was happening to you. And you're just like, what what is happening to me? Um, but at the time, my dad was working for, and still is working for this uh, wonderful gentleman who is like a big, uh, uh, kind of, I think he's like a, a petrol ty- tycoon sort of guy. He's quite big in the, in the, in the Middle East. Um, and his wife was having treatment at um, Harvard University um, under like a private sort of company. Um, and he heard about my story. My dad was explaining to him what was happening to me. And then one night I get a call from my dad saying, get your bags ready. We're going to America on I think it was like Sunday night or something. So I had to quickly get ready, get on my passports, everything like that, get a visa and all that really quick. Um, then went to America and I had about seven days of really heavy testing. And um, they took bloods. They took, uh, they knocked me out. Um, I found out that I had Bell's reflex in my eye um, and also had extreme photophobia. And then um, through blood testing and genetic kind of testing as well, and I've got the genetic genome, I think they call it, um, they finally found out what the issue was, uh, which was like a really rare version of oculotanus albinism. Um, but like it's, it's the version where like it's not like you kind of conventional albinism where you've got like it's quite obvious to see, like, you know, you look at me, people are like, you know, what is, what is kind of, uh, what is wrong? But all the kind of the things like I've got like white hair, I've got like patchy red skin. My eyes are kind of really, really, really like blue, almost white. Um, my hair is really white when you go down to the roots. All this was kind of, you know, presented to them and they kind of just did a blood test. Did a new, uh, like a human genome, they call it. And they finally found out I had a rare version of cutaneous albinism and kind of the relief um, of having a diagnosis yeah, yeah. and not you were kind of being told you were making it up was amazing. You know, it was like, oh my God, I'm actually not being weird or, you know, I'm not kind of, you know, making things up in my head, you know, because you do question yourself. Like, I remember, I remember uh, we, one of the stories I always tell is where I go to this place called Hall Fair. In Hall each year, there's this wonderful fair that comes to town. And it got to the stage where 
I just came home and collapsed in my mum's arms. My eyes just got so tired from the from the, the extreme amount of light flashing into my eyes. And I just was like, Mum, what's happening to me? And my mum had to just hold me when I just kind of broke down into floods of tears just because, you know, no one was giving me answers. And finally we went to America and they very kindly kind of explained to me what was happening and then kind of gave me what I needed to go back to Britain and, and kind of explain to them what happened to me. Um, and then kind of when this is all going on, the one kind of, I would say, shining light in my life, which was kind of keeping me going, was the judo. Because that's given rugby. Because you know, trying to play rugby and being visually impaired is quite tough. But nowadays, you can do visually impaired rugby. So when I retire, that's my new thing I go into. But wow. at the time, I was, like, what am I going to do? I can't play rugby anymore. Um, you know, and I was doing judo, and the judo was kind of the one constant thing of the day where I knew from between like six and eight o'clock at night, I was doing judo. And it got me on the mat. It took me away from that kind of that hurt and that kind of that kind of real dark time in my life where I was just kind of, you know, if any really, I think I look back at it now, it was a sort of depression because you didn't know what it was. It was kind of a, uh, uh, a kind of a really, yeah, I don't know. It was like something was missing and no one was explaining to me. Um, and then the judo was a kind of one constant thing going on in my life and everything like that. And, and I say it kept me routine. It kind of brought me out of kind of out the house, kept me busy. And then I was still competing, but I had to wear blindfold. So I was going to see these, like, what we call, uh, we call it sighted competitions, so fully sighted people. And I was fighting them blindfolded. And I was beating them. I was kept beating them. And I kept going to competitions, winning and stuff. I got my first national medal doing it blindfolded, um, which was quite cool. Um, and then at one of the tournaments, the coach at the time kind of just came across me and, and you know, had a chat with me and said, listen, do you know what uh, vision impaired judo is? I was like, no, never heard of it. And then, like, he then started to take, you know, introduce me more to the team, take me away more with the team. Um, and then I had to get classified, so I had to get all my kind of documents together to be able to classify and, and compete in the Paralympics, uh, which I've never heard of. You obviously, you know, you, you kind of quite is, you know, you don't really think I just wanted to be a mechanic. But then, obviously, you know about the Olympics, and I heard about the Paralympics. I was like, oh, you know, I'd love to try and do something like that. And then obviously you have to wait to get classified and finally got classified. And then, yeah, the journey kind of carried on from there, really. And just kind of, you know, kept going to more competitions, more competitions. And then, like, I think it was um, my kind of second second year, because I moved away from home, which is another big thing in my life, you know, being visually impaired, learning to be visually impaired and, like, learning to live with it as well and understand how to live with it. And moving away from home because your mum's not with you anymore. And I was living at this national training centre in Warsaw, where I'm still at at the moment. And uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. And then, you know, my goal was to try to get to Rio in 2016. And then, you know, it was very tough because, you know, I've, I've never done, I only did you as like a recreational, you know what I mean? Like I only did it for a hobby, not as a, not as a job. <laughs> you know? like, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I think I had one of the, with the National Training Centre, I got told I had one of the worst physiques coming in. <laughs> so I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks very much. Um, and then, yeah, I, you know, I didn't want to do it. Like, I, I did want to do it, but I didn't picture me doing it, if that makes sense. So it was kind of a thing that I was thrusted into, I kind of just went with. And then obviously, you know, trying to, qualification opens, and you're trying to get qualified. And then, um, I think it was like second competition, just after the second competition, which I didn't really do well at, 
the, the next one was a, what we call the World Games, which is like the biggest one of the year. And about uh, six weeks before, kind of my hip popped out and I oh, dislocated my hip. And then, and then I was like, oh, not again. And I was just thinking like, you know, I've already been through that. You know, what am I going to do? Like, I've already just given yeah. up one job. I found that I'll be able to go out and it just popped out. And like, really, that's a career-ending injury, you know, there and then. Um, and I was like, oh, God, it's really bad. I'm going to have to, you know, and because it was out for so long, because it was like, when I did it, I didn't get picked up by the ambulance for like three and a half hours. Wow. I was laid on the mat just with my hip out with no pain to this. Um, my foot kept going numb. So I like, went like totally white. I lost all like sort of blood to my foot. And I was like, oh, God. And then, like, you know, you could just tell people get a bit panicky. Yeah. And a bit more, but then luckily it was all right. And then they had like a little bit of injury. So like, but I had like four weeks leading up to like the World Games, just like, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, one of the biggest World Games I've, um, in, my, in my career so far but at that time. And I really wanted to try and get a medal, but like, they were like, listen, you've got four weeks, less than four weeks, and I had another operation to go and clear it out. And I remember speaking to my coach and he, uh, they were like, no, it's not possible, Chris, it's not possible. And I was like, no, it's possible. Give me, give me just 1%. And then my PD and my coach looked at me because my coach believed in me, but it's still like a physical thing. Like it's, it's very difficult to come back so quick. I was like, give me 1% and I'll be on that mountain and I'll win a medal. And I just, I think I was speaking so much trollop. I was just trying to get there. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I ever believed it, but I, I knew I wanted to be there. And um, I said, all right, I'll give you 1%. So we went in, operated it. This is about three weeks before um, I stepped onto the mat. And they were like, right, it's for a normal hip injury, normal hip dislocation, you're supposed to be off for six months. I was, and you're not supposed to put weight on it for three months because obviously you have to let it heal. I was putting weight on it after two days. Um, you're supposed to have stitches in for, I think they said like 10 days. I had it in for a day and I took them out. But I didn't take them out. Someone, someone took them out for me. They just glued it up. And then I'm not supposed to do judo for six months and I did it after 10 days. Wow. And they were like, this is just, it was not done before, but I said, trust me, I can do it. So I didn't know. I was going to bed every night with just like this hip, ice machine on my hip just to kind of stop it from swelling up. And luckily, I managed to pass all the tests with a little bit of help from a coach by, you know, fudging the numbers a little bit. And I managed to step on that, you know. Um, and, you know, didn't, you know, no fitness to me, but all I knew that mentally I was there. Physically, I wasn't really there, but mentally I knew I could do it. And then won my first two fights, got to semi-final. Um, sadly lost that because I think the fitness was caught to me. Then I had a bit of a break so I could, you know, catch up myself. And then, yeah, um, managed to beat, at the, at the time, was a Paralympic silver medalist who I've never beaten before. And then, like, that was another big moment in my life where I was like, I nearly had to stop judo about six weeks ago. And now I'm stood up on my first ever world medal, you know, with three weeks ago being an operating theatre thinking... Am I even going to step onto the mat again? So that's you know another time of my life where I kind of came through that dark period, and then um, yeah, and it, it didn't end there. So then obviously I had to do rehab properly. So I had to go back to square one, even though I kind of skipped about five six squares. So I had to go back to square one. Uh, did all that, got my hit back. I went to the Europeans, won my first European medal. Um, then managed to qualify for Rio, which was fantastic. Um, amazing run up, no injuries this time. Absolutely smooth, smooth kind of uh, lead into into Rio, 
and then yeah, um, sadly, it was my day. <laughs> Which you know, first time the pictures was amazing. The lead up was amazing. You were doing stuff with Channel Four. You were doing interviews, like the stuff that you never dream of doing. And this, for me personally, like four years ago, five years ago, at the time, I was questioning what I was going to do in my life. You know, about five, six years later, I'm stood, I'm stood there. You know, in a Channel Four premiere of because we did them. Um, we involved in an advert for Rio, me and my friend Jack, and uh, yeah, it's quite a surreal moment. All these people from like uh, Gogglebox and all these sort of celebrities and you're like, oh, I'm a mix of all these people. <laughs> and it was crazy real. I said to you, you didn't think that, but mm. sadly real wasn't meant to be. I didn't medal. Um, I got, I won my, f- I lost my first, lost in the quarterfinal, which meant I had to go back down to Repichard, fought my way through to the bronze medal final. I was like, this has got to be the cherry on the top. There's got to be the cherry on the top for me because like everything I've been through, but sadly I won. And like, I just remember bursting into tears. Mm. Um, get really upset again. Like, I was like, oh, God, I failed, you know. I, you know, I didn't mm. not achieve what I wanted to achieve, you know, especially with everything I've been through. And then I wanted to kind of just get that, that medal, but sadly it wasn't meant to be. And then went back to square one, looked at myself, looked at all my weaknesses, looked at everything I need to improve on, you know, which is quite hard. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror and just admit to yourself you weren't good enough. And I went back to square one. And I just had to get better. You know, I had to work harder. I had to, I started a new sport within jiu-jitsu, which would really help my judo. Uh, I started to do a bit of wrestling as well, which also helped my judo. And then kind of just, you know, throughout, through the years after 2017, won my first European medal, uh, European Games, so European Championships. And then, um, yeah, just kept winning fights, winning fights, uh, winning competitions, being on, being on the medal rostrum every time I went to a competition. And then in 2019, I became ever the first, uh, well, sorry, for me, for world number one for the first time oh. in my career. Amazing. At my weight category. And then, um, yeah, carried on, kept, kept meddling. And then 2020 come along, and you know, world number one, going into Paralympic world number one, had two events, which I, you know, did quite well at me. But suddenly then <laughs> COVID happened. I was like, oh, God. I just want to compete, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so that then, again, that's more challenging, you know. In a sense, for me, actually, COVID was, was you know, what how was happening in the world. For me, COVID was not that bad because I managed to isolate with my now wife. You know, we had a lot of time together. We had a lot of kind of, uh, I was able to train with her, we pushed each other. But, you know, to be fair, what was happening in the world, we were quite, you know, safe and secure, which I was very lucky. I know what was happening and everything like that. There was some horror stories out there and, my heart only goes out to what happened out there and all the people that sadly passed away. Like it was a really bad time. Um, and but I had to keep kind of focused and training and ready to go. And then um we we got we went to that train a bit earlier because I think it was like professional athletes could train in a bubble. So we were able to go back to training a little bit earlier than everyone else, especially due to the contact sport, you have to be careful. So we were like smaller bubbles to be able to train. Because we were still thinking like there was there was no kind of concrete evidence. They, all we knew was that, like, Tokyo was moved back a year, and we were very upset. I remember eating my weight in pork pies and cider for a night, finding out that was news. But you know, I had to positive reframe and know that I've got a year to get better, which meant we kind of were able to go back and train a bit sooner. Um, but yeah, managed to come back and keep myself away from COVID. Not uh, had some really close scares though because like. There's COVID all around you as well, like people going down with COVID. 
but like touch wood, COVID never hit me. You know, it was like that's amazing. And then um, yeah, um, managed to do the last two events and went into the Paralympics, won the one, and then yeah, it was the day of my life. And then yeah, that's yeah. that's how I got there. Got the gold medal. It was a a roller coaster of a journey. I think I broke down. I went, uh, I kind of held myself together the whole day, and then when I just realised I did it, I was like, Ooh, and I just cried everywhere. Yeah. I was an all, I'm an awful crier, Darren. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's to be honest. That's crying after that was uh, justified, I believe, with um, everything you went through. Um, it was completely justified i think that was an incredible story very powerful um and it just shows with sheer perseverance and determination that you can get anything you want yeah i'll be honest Aaron, i'm not the most talented athlete in the world i, I was i was told when i went first in the center i had the worst physique in the world yeah. which was a funny thing to be said but yeah. the one thing that no one can ever question me on is my kind of my determination and my will to kind of keep going forward. And, you know, I don't have Ubers of talent like these, some of the guys I see every day. But what I do, I work really hard to, to be to that level and to try and, you know, keep myself at that level. You know, I, I've never had talent, never had a talent in anything. I've always had to work hard for it. And, you know, I get that off. My mum, my dad, like all them people in my life. My, my wife is really, you know, she works really hard. So I have all these people around me that kind of pump me up as well. And even, you know, my coaches that kind of carried me through my life, they kind of kept me going, made me work hard for what I kind of have done. Sometimes I think that I'd rather be like that sort of mentality of working hard rather than having that natural born talent. Because for me... Yeah it's so much more rewarding because you knew all the battles and injuries you've had to go yeah. through to get there yeah. rather than the ones that just wake up in the morning and they can run 100 metres in four seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just naturally without having to train hard for it. I can't see there's no there's no real reward for that, to be honest, is there, really? No, and, it, and, and you know, there's no reward for that. And I actually... I think what I've also learned is that to leave no stone unturned and yeah. to kind of really, and to be open to like learn as well. Like I've always had to adapt and learn to my situation. Like no, there's not like a book. There's no book in life, especially life when you lose your vision or like struggle with your vision. There's no book on how to live with it. You learn how to live it yourself. Like yeah. what works for me, not necessarily work with someone else with visual impairment, but it works for me. Like, you know, my phone and my iPad, you know, or everything. I zoom in on stuff. Everything's adapted for me. And that's what I've learned. It's like, you have to learn. And like, you can get knocked down all the time. You know, you can get knocked back. But as long as you learn from the knockbacks and you keep moving forward. Like, I'd rather fail a hundred times and pass once because that hundred fails times, you learn how not to do it and you learn a better way of doing things. And that's, I think that's what my life has always been. Like, I always have to learn and adapt to my situation and learn and keep moving forward. Of course. Definitely. And for you, because you had you had judo there to help you, and life could have been so much more different for you if you didn't have judo or, or rugby. It 
could have been for anyone else that's struggling with getting something in life that changes their life forever, like you, with your being visually impaired and is finding that one thing that they've always done beforehand and kind of going to that and using that as a strength like you did with judo. It, so yeah. many people could have, you could have fallen apart and your life could, have, could be looking so much different. We wouldn't be talking by now. You wouldn't have been a former world number one or a gold medalist. You could have, your life could have taken a different path, but you used judo and given that, that judo gave you that strength. I think I think that's all it is. Judo is my strength, and everyone has a strength in their life. And like, like some people have like some. You see some people with visual impairment who are fully blind are so good at music, or so good at art, or so good at cooking. You know, stuff that people like. No, you can't do that. And but it's like the only the people who say you can't do that, I've never tried it themselves. And I always say to people, I always speak to youngsters, I'm like, and they say, I can't do that. I go, you you can. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you're only yeah. you're only visually impaired or blind. You can still get your hands. You know, you can yeah. feel, you can smell, you can taste. Yeah. You know, you can hear. You know, don't just say you can't because someone's told you you can't. You, you yeah. go and do it and prove them wrong. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, you can't go and do that." You know, like like the, the classic example. You can't do that. Yeah, I can. You know, yeah. go and show them I can do it. You know, like I was given one percent to step onto a mat in three weeks. Give me that one percent. And I think that's what I always tell the youngsters. It's like, give yourself a chance. Don't write it off immediately because you, you know, you're you're visually impaired or you're blind. You know, you know, you're either missing a limb or, uh, you know, you're, you know, uh, in a, in a wheelchair. That's not that. That is, you know, that is. That's just. I don't know. It's like a, it's not. A, it's just not there. Yeah, it's not right. You can keep moving. Get up and do it. Yeah, you, know, you can do it. You just have to have the mindset to do it. You know what I mean? Of course, definitely. You can. You can you can play the victim or you can be the victor. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's so many people like my, my, you know my wife uses a wheelchair all the time, and, but we've been everywhere you can think of. Either I will pick her up and carry her there, and she tells me where to go, or you know we'll get there somehow. You know we'll figure ways out to do it. You know, like there's no nothing's impossible. You know, the only thing that's impossible is if you let it be impossible. It sounds really weird, like. You're the only person who can stop it. No one else. They can all say, oh, it's not safe. I'm going to do it. You know what I mean? Like, the amount of times me and my wife, go, oh, no, sorry, she can't do that. I'm like, get out of the way. You know what I mean? You know, like, and the amount of times, you know, someone said, oh, you can't do it because he's, you know, visually impaired. My wife's like, I've got it. You know, like, that's it. You know, she's my, I'm, she's my eyes and I'm her, you know, her, uh, her legs. And I'll go where she wants to go. Brilliant. That's, it similar to my story it's when I um, was getting released from hospital um, after I had my breakdown and my suicide attempt uh, and they were due to release me in hospital for me the doctors were my were my enemies in a way because like everyone else that says like with you when they were saying that because you were visually, visually impaired that they weren't willing to give you that that one percent they were pushing and saying, no, you haven't got that 1%. The doctors with me were saying, oh, you're going to, because of the severity of your condition, and uh, you're going to relapse within three to four years. And I'm like, it took a while to sink in. And I thought, yeah. how, dare, how dare they say that that I'm going to be back in, in three or four, within three or four years? 
And I was like, well, that kind of gave me the push and motivation, like it probably did with you, to prove, like you said, to prove them wrong and to be the person that I knew I deserved to be like, like you did. Yeah, I think I think people kind of giving people timelines and things like that. Like, I always get like, I get quite annoyed. Like, why are you giving people timelines? Like, everyone's an individual. There's seven billion people in this world, and seven billion people individual. Not everyone is comes under the same book. Like, we're all individual people, and I get that's why I get a little bit annoyed with like, like any sort of professionals or professions who like, well, I know this and I know that. Well, no, because you don't know everything. You know, the world is so massive. Like, and this is why I always say, like, you've got to learn and understand the world and, like, how are people are different and how people work differently. Like, it's it's just, like, there's so much going on in the world. I don't think anyone's professional or professional and know everything. It's it's for you to learn and understand it and, and kind of overcome them obstacles that will be in your life, but know that you've got people behind you that love you and support you. Like, you know, in a sense... I knew that I had people behind me willing to push me forward, you know, but I knew that I didn't need it. I knew that I needed to go and do it myself. You know what I mean? Like, I know I had that support, like, all that most, like, like, like blanket or trampoline that you can rely and come back on, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to prove to them that I'm okay and I can keep moving forward, you know? Yeah. And it's people with depression, many mental health condition, illnesses, i.e. depression, anxiety, anything like that, sometimes they find it difficult because they feel like they don't have that that background support and to have that yeah. those people around them to, to show them that, yes, it's okay, you can go out and be who you want to be and we're here, that we're here to support you. And it's so difficult for for those people, especially those that are trying to chase something in their life the darkness sometimes can come over like I talk about the darkness in my life is the kind of the unknown of what was happening that was my sort of darkness and the kind of question of who you are and what you were doing and everything like that and everyone's darkness is different and every sometimes you know it, it does feel a little bit you, it took me a while to understand those people behind me you know what I mean and, and understand that you know, my mum was always going to be there, but she wasn't going through what I was going through. She didn't know what was happening. No one did. You know, and it was hard to to kind of let yourself understand that people actually was there. And I had, so I, my first understanding of it, when I went on to the team, the Paralympic team, the vision impaired team, sorry, and there were about four of the lads who all, you know, had the same, or having some sort of issue. And I also know when I first went, actually, you know, there's about one, two, three, four of us all going through the same issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like, you then realise after a while, the darkness, you're not in that darkness alone. There's other people in that darkness going through similar issues or, you know, different issues, but kind of kind of relate to you. And then that's when I kind of had them, I had some really deep conversations with some of the lads on the team. And at the time, some of them were going through the same issue and realised that mm-hmm. we could rely on each other and understand each other and you know, help each other through the, the difficult time. You know, one of my best mates, um, and two of my really like, I count as a brother, Liam, he he was also visually impaired, you know, so he could help me a little bit. So after a while, the darkness, you know, still is there and still kind of is maybe risen a little bit. You know, it's always going to maybe be there somewhere, but 
you know, you're not as scared to be in the dark, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because you know there's other people out there going through the kind of similar issues to you. But at the time, you just feel like you're the only one going on in the world. That's happening to you. You know what I mean? Oh, um, it just overtakes you. Yeah. It's, it's, like you said, it's difficult when, when you're first in that dark place, you don't know how to control it. But once you learn and understand that there is those people around you, you're able to, you're not going to have every day is going to be perfect. You're going to have days where, like you said, yeah. it's good. You're going to be in your dark place, but you learn to, to control it. You learn to know because you understand that there is people around you. You've got that support network and you can learn to control it, which in turn, then down the line, you have less dark days. If that makes sense, you still have them. I, I had to recently, I recently um, sought seat help um, in the last year, just, just because it, with all the stuff in my life, family mm. stuff, and then obviously what I went through. And then um, I, I had, I've had about a year of, a year of counselling, you know. And at the start, I was quite like shady about it and like didn't want to talk about it. But now I'm quite open about it and actually tell people to kind of go and talk to someone because, you know, for once, you know, my wife and my mum have always been there supporting me and my friends and my family have always been there supporting me. But sometimes it's nice just to talk to someone who is no affiliation to you, who, you know, doesn't really know you, who literally just talks to you or face value and lets you just kind of let go of all these things that have been in your head for ages. And, you know, at the time, I went through a really tough period again because I I had this classification event and they then accused me of not, you know, faking it and all that again. That classic kind of line. Yeah. I was like, oh, God, not again. You know what I mean? Yeah. This time, I had someone to talk to. I kind of, at first, it kind of just the darkness hit me again. You know, you just wow. slumped back in. I felt like I was being back in by this room, you know, when someone just lassoes your foot and just pulled you in. Yeah. But this time I went to talk to and, and and they helped me realise that actually, you know, that's you 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 will sometimes slip back in, but then you know, you you will come back out because you've done it before. And you'll do it again. You know. Yeah. So I I so, you know, I think one of the best things I did was actually just speak because a lot of the sessions I did were just talking about what I went through in my eyesight and the kind of yeah. the kind of question of myself who I was. But you know, I always you know, say to people, you are struggling, you know, do reach out to someone. Because, you know, sometimes, even if it's just to get off your chest, I feel like if you get off your chest, you're then able to kind of carry on. You know what I mean? Because then if you sit to let it vegetate your bed, and it kind of, it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it overtakes you, and you're like, ah. Yeah. So I always, you know, but I, you know it's, it's good to try and talk to someone. Definitely. And one one last thing um, before we end today's episode, I'm very much like with youth. I believe, obviously, the youth of our future they go through so much with school, try get, being pushed into saying that education is absolutely everything when it's it's not everything at all. And so many people have proven it. Entrepreneurs, many, well, everyone's proven that you don't need to have a full-on education to have a successful life, successful career. But there's so much emphasis on having that 
perfect education and fitting in in life, trying to find where they belong, what direction they're going. Building the friendship group um, is particularly difficult for for children. I'm a father myself, so I know my daughter's gone through that phase where she has struggled with a friendship group at some stage. Um, and it is difficult for them because they're trying to find out who they are as well. And when they go into that young age, into a teenage age, and they're going through that change, it's even more difficult. Um, what would you say to the youth of today trying to pursue a, a career in Olympics, anything professional like that, that may be struggling with with anything in particular, whether it's a severe back injury or visually impaired or anything like that, anything else like that, what would you say to, to guide them and help them? I think the first thing is, is, is don't be scared to be yourself. I think a lot, especially nowadays, a lot of people have the pressure to be a certain way. Mm. And like a certain type in a certain position or in a certain group. And I think be an individual, be who you want to be. You know, don't don't be kind of forced into doing something. Like if you don't want to do education, you want to do an apprenticeship, go and do an apprenticeship. If you want to go um and not go to college and you want to work and work your way up, go and do it. I think there's so many people get pressed into doing things. Four or five years down the line, they go, actually, I'm not happy with this. And they're back to square one. And when actually, if they just went with a gut and went, actually, no, I don't want to do this, I'm going to do it this way, you know, mm-hmm. go and do it. Don't be scared to do that first step. I think a lot of people are, are, are nervous to, to go through that, to go through that door, that imaginary door that leads into your next bit of your life, your next chapter. And people are scared to do it. I was scared at the time. I was, you know, really scared to step through the door. But, you know, don't be scared to take that first step because, you know, and, and be yourself, be an individual, do what you want to do. This is your life. You know, there's 7 billion people in this world, as I said before. Be who you want to be. Don't let someone tell you you can't do it because you've got to do it this way. It's your life. At the end of the day, when you look back at your life, you want to say, I've done everything I wanted to do. I've done everything I've set myself, set my goals. You know, I've done everything I've wanted to set myself. And I've done it. And also, it's also adapt. You know, be adaptable because stuff can change on a on a on a click of a finger. You know, be adaptable, be willing to learn, and just my biggest thing is just try and enjoy yourself as while doing it as well. You know, I think a lot of a lot of time kids and adults get put pressure on them to be, you know, to focus, 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 and you lose the enjoyment of it. And actually, when we strip it all back, why did you first do with this thing in the first place? It's enjoyment. And I think that's my kind of bit of advice is to also enjoy yourself. Because, you know, we're not on this earth for long sometimes and you just need to enjoy life as much as you you can. And just, you know, be you, be an individual and enjoy yourself while doing it. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and yeah, like as Chris says, just take each day as it comes and live each day as if it's your last and just go out and be who you want to be and don't let anyone else control you and tell you who you can be. Um, So yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Chris. I really 
Really appreciate it. I'm honoured to have you on. It was an incredible episode. Um, and if you know, don't let me, you know, I sometimes ramble on. It's absolutely I, 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 brilliant. I see sometimes my eyes go, sometimes I go, <laughs> no. Why sometimes there's going like this? Come on. <laughs> no, but it's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I loved it. And I'm sure everyone listening and watching and will be absolutely inspired and motivated by your story and will go and chase their own dreams and anything they want to do in life. Um so thank you again for coming on. Perfect. And I will leave everyone listening and watching with one last question, which inspired me to call my show this, is uh, who do you deserve to be? Um, thank, you for, thank you very much again for watching, listening, and thank you again for coming on, Chris. Thank you, Darren.